Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, will ABC Park Board Commissioners keep their campaign promise and remove the Stanley Park bike lane, or are they having second thoughts? Plus, the tale of two cities meet the other half of Metro Vancouver homeowners who are mortgage-free. And remember when loyalty cards actually meant, well, loyalty? Why are Starbucks and other companies making it harder to collect reward points? Plus, we'll have the latest on China's spy balloons breaching Canadian and American airspace. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's focus on local politics, or at least uh, park politics. The Vancouver Park Board is considering three different options when it comes to the future of the Stanley Park bike lane. The vote or conversation takes place tonight. The three different options include keeping the bike lane as it currently is, but removing sort of the busier sections around the park entrance, uh, roundabout and near uh, Lumberman's Arch, uh, maintaining the bike lane around the park, and keeping the single lane for vehicles or removing the bike lane inside the park, uh, something the ABC Park Board Commissioners vowed to do during the last civic election. It's a highly divisive issue. Uh, we had uh, Bonnie uh, McKenzie on on Friday's show. She's a spokesperson for Stanley Park for All. She is supportive of removing the bike lane. Take a listen to her comments. Well, to say that we're disappointed is probably an understatement. The ABC Party campaigned on removing the bike lane, removing all of the bike lane and putting it back to pre-COVID configuration for both traffic and parking. They have not done that. What we would like to see is them to keep their promise, honour their word Mm -hmm. and remove the whole bike lane. Put it back to the way that it was. That was Bonnie McKenzie from the uh, Stanley Park for All organization. She spoke to us on Friday. Well, joining now is Jeff Lee. He's president of the board at Hub Cycling. He joins us now. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, where do you sit on this is, situation with the three different options? What would you like to see happen? Well, all of the options restore pre-COVID traffic flows. So we shouldn't focus on them having a, a plus or a minus on, on vehicle traffic throughout the park. But option B actually improves the bike lane that is there, the temporary one, gets rid of all the orange cones and and creates a bike lane that's similar in concept to to Beach Avenue with a low curb and right around the park. And and that one is is our preferred option. Option Uh, A would would do most of that. It would do 70 or 60 percent of that and leave no bike lane in uh, in the east side of the park. What do you say to people like Ms. McKenzie uh, who say, look, the promises made by ABC candidates at that time that uh, you restore the traffic uh, pre-COVID to where it was pre-COVID and you find and look for a new way to put in a proper uh, cycling lane uh, in, in Stanley Park? I think most of the traffic problems have been due to the temporary nature of the lane with things like orange cones and, 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 and confusion with where people should travel and so on. The, the commissioners that were elected, all but one of them, actually committed to uh, support the lane in Stanley Park during their campaign, and they committed that to hub cycling and publicly. And the motion that was passed back in December that talked about removing the lane um, talked about removing the temporary lane and building a permanent lane in time for the summer. And that's exactly what options A and B are doing. So this is exactly in support of what ABC campaigned on. And uh, I say all three of the options re- address the traffic flow issues. So I, I don't think that there's a significant difference there. Why is this issue so divisive? I think it's a little bit of a manufactured issue. I think uh, um, a lot of people get very excited about uh, about bike lanes and, and construction, and, and we saw that historically in Vancouver. If we think back to the Broad Bridge protests, and if we heard about all the 
the, the disaster was going to befall us if we built the seaside greenway up along Point Grey Road. And a lot of that has died down over the years. But but the the park board uh, um, decision process has been complicated by 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 people using Stanley Park as a uh, as, as a campaign platform. And and I think it's time to move on from that. The issue of the roadway itself, the two lanes, people felt, look, leave those for vehicles and build a proper bike lane for cyclists through the park. And whatever the cost may be, we can afford it. It should be done. What do you say to that argument that, look, these compromises are compromises ultimately. It's going to slow down motorists and it's probably not the exact type of lane that most cyclists want. Let's build a a, a lane that is there for cyclists uh, and obviously uh, consulting with cyclists as well and doing it properly. What do you say to that? I think it's very disingenuous to say that we would uh, uh, maintain two lanes of traffic and build a, a protected, separated lane around Stanley Park. I don't think there's any appetite for taking over green space and cutting down trees and doing things to build a new lane around the park. Um, we know from all of the traffic studies that we don't need two lanes of vehicle traffic to manage the traffic flow that goes through the park. We need passing on overtaking opportunities. We need pullouts for buses and, and transit and so on. But the traffic flow that is going around the park does not need two lanes of vehicle in all places. It does in some places. So when we say that we'll leave all those two lanes there and go and and uh, uh, simply find a new place for a bike lane, I just don't think there's any appetite for that. I don't think the uh, the First Nations uh, um, who are part of the consultation process want to see uh, that built in the park. I don't think that the uh, people who are concerned about the green space within the park and the reduction in green space and cutting down trees to, to build a new lane, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, so we really have to rest the fact that the seawall path is simply not appropriate for the volumes of cyclists we are seeing. It's not safe and it's not comfortable for the sort of use volumes that we're seeing. And finding a way to use the roadway more intelligently to allow traffic flow at pre-COVID levels while having a protected lane meets the needs of all users and gets more people into the park. That's where we should be focusing. Where do you think this this park board board, um, will go with this, uh, if you're a betting man tonight? I think we're going to have to wait and see. I think that the (laughs) ABC... uh, uh, commissioners have uh, so far voted as as a block, and it, it's going to be interesting to see if they continue to do that. Um, certainly, we've had lots of discussions with ABC commissioners. We've heard support for um, options that uh, uh, provide a bike lane as per their December motion that said that they wanted to build a bike lane around the park. And uh, it, it's a question of do they have the numbers to, uh, to pull that through within their own party. Um, but I, I think that I think it's very difficult to justify um, for a party that is concerned about costs and, and money and, and taxpayers to say that we would spend $330,000 to rip out everything that's there and then come back and start to build a new lane as they committed to, that's going to cost a lot of money. The money that they're talking about now, and it's the same cost that they've estimated, whether they build the 70% solution or the 100% mm-hmm. solution around the park, both of those result in the bike lane for very little more than simply taking out what's there. And it's not a fair comparison to compare the 330,000 to 500 and so 1,000 because the, the difference is, in one case, you've got a bike lane. The other one, you have to start paying for this bike lane now. Well, it's going to be interesting what uh, happens tonight, uh, once again, showing the difference between campaigning and governing. So I look forward to the conversation, and I'm sure you do as well, and look forward to having you on the show as well. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me.
Let's talk healthcare for a moment. The last 90 minutes or so, uh, we've learned that Canada's premiers uh, have accepted Ottawa's proposal to spend billions of dollars into the provincial healthcare systems across this country. It's a It was a 10-year proposal, $196 billion to prop up, a system that is challenged, uh, certainly uh, post-COVID. Of that $196 billion, I want to add that $46 billion is actually new money. So what does this mean? Because the premiers uh, were balking at it initially, not too happy, saying more needed to be put in, but now they've accepted the deal. Joining me now to talk about this uh, healthcare funding offer is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, what do you think of all this? So the, the Premier said initially that's not enough, we need more, and all of a sudden they've accepted it. Uh, what's, your, what, what, what's your take on this? just spoke to Health Minister Adrian Dix. The fascinating thing about this is he said the federal government here had an opportunity to do something historic, and when I said, well, is this not historic? He says, I try to see things as positively as possible. So reading between the lines, Jazz, is Health Minister Adrian Dix believes an opportunity has been missed here, but it doesn't preclude British Columbia from signing bilateral agreements. And those conversations start tomorrow. As it happens, Jean-Yves Duclos, the federal health minister and intergovernmental affairs minister, Dominic LeBlanc, will be here in Victoria tomorrow to meet with Health Minister Adrian Dix and Premier David Eby, and they will start having dialogue around what bilaterals look like. The reason this is important, Jazz, is this agreement they've signed here is basically a 1% or 2% increase on annual transfers from Ottawa to all of the provinces. What the provinces were looking for was closer to a double-digit increase annually based on you know historic numbers and what is needed. Now that that deal is signed at only 1% or 2% increase, there's an opportunity to sign specific deals around specific issues. So that could be family medicine, primary care. It could be long-term care. So we'll get a sense tomorrow, hopefully, from the Premier about where those conversations are starting for a bilateral for BC. Are, are, are the differences all related to money? Or is it also, when Mr. Dix says uh, an o- missed opportunity, does this also mean that we could have looked at you know, driving disruption uh, innovation in the in in into public healthcare, perhaps using more private healthcare, but within the health within the context of public healthcare, was there is there any feeling that perhaps they should have allowed a bit more private sector involvement in a public system? I think that was never part of the conversation British Columbia wanted mm-hmm. to have, and BC uh, has some differing opinions in that regard compared to some of the other provinces where who we have seen. Um, a larger acceptance of moving towards some private health care delivery. Health Minister Adrian Dix doesn't want to have that conversation. There's no interest at a provincial level here to dialogue on expanding private delivery. Yes, we know that there are some surgeries and diagnostic testing delivered privately, but the province is more interested in acquiring those private clinics and operating them through the health authorities. This was, as you mentioned, Jazz, a conversation about dollars and cents, about money. It wasn't about innovation. It wasn't about changing delivery. It was just about getting more money in the pockets of the provincial coffers to spend to healthcare. We got a couple minutes left here, but the the issue of dollars and bilateral deals, as you said, doesn't it just lead to me too? In the sense that wouldn't you yeah, want sure. a broad national deal here rather than hey, BC wants a, a bit more of a focus here? Can you give us some one-off dollars? And all of a sudden, Alberta says, "Oh, me too." Too. Saskatchewan gets a separate deal, and BC says, well, we want a bit of that. Me too. It doesn't speak to a cohesive, broad healthcare system if we start doing bilateral deals. Am I wrong here? 
you're not wrong. And one of the issues, as you're acutely aware of, is the politics of all of this, right? We have mm-hmm. conservative governments in many provinces. We have an NDP government here. We have liberal governments in Atlantic Canada. Uh, and there was a different willingness uh, to engage with the prime minister in bilaterals. We saw this with child care. B.C. was the first out of the gate on child care because of that alignment with Premier John Horgan at the time and the prime minister. I wonder if B.C. is going to attempt to be first out the door here to try to establish that relationship between Premier David Eby and the prime minister that B.C. is willing to play ball here and say, okay, if the provinces don't want to sign on to a unilateral deal where everybody gets the same terms, B.C. is willing to come to the table and maybe um, agree to some of the things that Ottawa wants to see. That includes health data gathering. It includes better sharing of data. uh, It includes um, closely monitoring outcomes. So all of those factors play into this as well. Richard, thank you. Yeah, Jasmine, pleasure as always. Thank you. Let's talk Super Bowl. Well, actually, halftime show, more importantly. Pop star Rihanna returned to the stage in one would describe as grand fashion. The performance uh, I would describe as when I was looking at the staging, it was wonderful. The, the, the camera work was amazing. And you know what? She was, the I think, the first pregnant person to headline the event. So lots of good things there. But I felt it was a tad Underwhelming, And I think there's a lot of us out there. And joining me now to talk a little bit about the halftime show is Leah Halive. She's a TV reporter and radio host. Hello, Leah. Hello, Jazz. Hello. All right, your thoughts. I, 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 I watched it and I looked around uh, the room where I was. There's quite a few of us watching it. And I just kind of thought, well, that could have been better. I don't know. What, what was your thought? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I was excited to see Riri perform, and in, like there was a lot of hype about it. She came out. The platforms, like you said, were very cool, and the marshmallow men, the back or women and men, the backup dancers there were pretty funny too. I thought she started out with a bang, and it was really good. And then I just kept waiting and waiting for another performer, like a guest performer, like maybe Jay Z or Drake or even her man ASAP Rocky. But song after song, it just kept the same consistency, right? I kind of thought we needed somebody else to kind of change the vibe and liven it up again because it just kept, it felt like the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, there wasn't anything that was too surprising. I mean, the look was wonderful, as I said, but there yeah. wasn't anything that sort of sort of jumped out at me. And, and a lot of us that were watching uh, the other day uh, on Sunday, sorry, yesterday, it just felt the same way. I was looking at some social media posts and look, the, the hardcore fans uh, we'll see nothing wrong with this. But for me, mm-hmm. I was just going through them. Here's one. It says, I agree with many. One of the most boring halftime shows ever. There are women who run marathons while pregnant. All Rihanna did was walk around lip sync oh, and use the oh. halftime to announce she's pregnant. Really? Oh, wow. So <laughs> extremely terrible. Here, here's here's another one. I know. I'm the crazy one for expecting a performer to perform at a halftime show instead of, uh, instead of walking around like they're lost in a parking structure. Okay. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> they're... They're vicious out there. And wow. it's it's okay to acknowledge that Rihanna's Super Bowl was subpar. The bar is so low now, it's almost laughable if it weren't so sad. Pregnancy is no excuse for low energy and bad lip syncing. So uh, there's a lot of folks out there that just weren't happy. I'm like you, you know, I kind of thought, you know, there would be another performer coming at Jay-Z, obviously, another one. I thought maybe she'd go old school, you know, have Janet Jackson on. Remember the old wardrobe mm-hmm. malfunction and give her an opportunity because she got treated so poorly after that. That Super Bowl performance was Justin Timberlake. So this morning, uh, we were talking about the halftime show and our producer, Stephen Chang, uh, informed us that he did not watch the football game and did not see the halftime show. 
So we said, guess Loud what? Demon. Yes. You go in the booth, watch it, and and comment comment on it as it's playing, which he did, and we recorded it. So take a oh. listen to take a listen to some of his thoughts. And he's a huge Riri fan as well. Let's see what he had to say. Oh, oh, she oh, she's pregnant. Oh my god. Oh, okay. Oh, that's quite the reveal. Can you imagine just revealing to the world that you're pregnant for the second time? By doing the Super Bowl halftime show, oh my god. Oh, that baby is gyrating. <laughs> you know, so far I'm just feeling like this is a regular concert. I'm not really getting any halftime vibes from this. It's like a award show performance. It's like she's in the Grammys. That's kind of what I'm getting from this right now so far. It feels like it's rushing. It's kind of, it kind of feels like she's rushing through the set list. Oh, yes. I love this song. Yes. Yes. Bring out Drake. Okay, no, not yet. That'd be great if you brought out Drake, one of the biggest artists right now who did this song with you. Come on, Rihanna, let's see it. I know I'm setting my expectations too early, but come on, it's the Super Bowl halftime show. Oh, oh, wait, so, oh. Just right into the next song, so no Drake. Okay. You have to bring Jay-Z out for this. Is he, Jay-Z? Jay-Z? Where is he? Where is he? Okay, now are they gonna bring out Jay-Z if not for that last one? I didn't realize how long this halftime show was, by the way. But is she gonna bring out Jay-Z? That's my question. Because she has brought out nobody so far. Come on, Jay-Z? 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 Oh, oh. And that's it. And that's it. Just, it. it just ended. He's right. Like, I kept thinking Jay-Z was actually at the game, too. It was like, where, where, who's coming out? Nobody. And it's funny because we, my, my man and I, Carlos, we were watching and I'm like, he's like, she's pregnant. And then I'm like, no, she just had a baby nine months ago. And then we're looking and looking and I'm like, oh my God, I think she is pregnant, right? And nobody <laughs> said anything. She did all this press, you know, nobody clued in. She wore all those baggy outfits and stuff. So now it makes sense. But I mean, I don't know. She's amazing. I love her. I just wish there was somebody else that came out to perform with her. Yeah, I mean, she is a great star and then she's got like, talk about a hit record hit song after hit song after hit song yeah. he's got a great body of work and it's just it just did not do what it was supposed to do that halftime it show it stayed, stayed the same consistency the whole time like it was what thir- how many minutes was it I think they bumped it up this time to like 20 20 some odd minutes and it just they needed a change you know you have to have a set change you have to do something just to like keep people interested in it you know those marshmallow men were good but I mean once we saw them that was it right so well, I, think both, I think they could have bumped it up I think we're both bit. correct just based on Stephen Chang's response yeah. to the Stephen's <laughs> right. I can't believe all the viciousness online, though. Oh, it, it, they don't stop. That's for sure. Leah, thank I, you. So, I, sorry, go ahead. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, I tweeted about it yesterday and today, and I'm getting responses like that from people. And I'm like, oh, my God, what do I say to that? You know, like, <laughs> she's still amazing. It you is, know? It's 200 million people watching, and our, and our I guess our expectations are so high now that yep. uh, God forbid an artist just perform and uh, they not have anybody followed up. And actually stand there. Yeah. I know. I mean, she's, not, she's probably not known for being the, the greatest dancer anyway. No. But, and she's and got great songs. And you know what? Songs. 
Yeah. Her streaming sales were going to go up because that's what happens and that's why they perform. Yeah. Lady Gaga's went up a thousand percent after her performance. So there you go. Yeah, I was going to make more money. Yeah, Shakira and <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, uh, I think, added three million Instagram followers after the, their yeah. uh, Super Bowl. That's why they, they never pay these performers. They pay. Yeah, they don't get paid. Yeah, they yeah. pay the dancers. And, and NFL still pulls in 50 million a year from Apple Music now for five years for that halftime <laughs> yeah. sponsorship. Well, their productions year. are expensive. Like one of the most expensive was 17 million. And that was the weekends. Like yeah. that's expensive. I think that'll probably what? that'll probably minutes. come out of that sponsorship deal. I'm not sure Rihanna's going to be paying that, but uh, you no. know she'll she'll do just fine. <laughs> Le- no, Leah, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Well, in average, households in Canada are, are enrolled in about eight loyalty programs at any given time. We love our loyalty cards. It's part of 120 million. Canadian loyalty memberships uh, uh, nationally. Lots and lots of loyalty cards out there. Well, starting today, there are changes coming to those who have Starbucks reward, uh, reward the Starbucks reward program. It'll take 100 stars to get a free cup of coffee or baked good. Now, previously, it was 50 stars. Essentially, customers are being asked to spend twice as much to get a free cup of coffee. Now, in December, Tim Hortons made similar changes uh, to its loyalty program, hiking the price of coffee from 70 points to 400. Uh, And uh, even the U.S. uh, chain Dunkin' Donuts rolled out similar changes in October. So what is going on with these loyalty programs that want us to obviously uh, spend money, number one. Number two, sometimes even uh, put money on those cards so it'll be more convenient, which the company has access to. Uh, But here they are, once again, doubling the amount of money you're going to have to spend to get a free cup of coffee. Well, joining us now to discuss loyalty and reward programs is Patrick Sochka. He is the founder of Rewards Canada. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me on your show today. It's a pleasure. So walk me through this. Starbucks appears to be watering down its reward program. What kind of reaction are you getting from those who uh, uh, you know, read your, your site or are involved in collecting rewards? What kind of reaction are you getting? Yeah, people definitely aren't, aren't happy about it because basically now, you know, the kind of the most basic reward, the one that a lot of people have used was for the, the pre-coffee or just the pre-hot drink, none of the fancy drinks. Um, now requires twice as much uh, Spending instead of twenty five dollars to get that free hot beverage, you have to spend fifty dollars with the program, and that's when you're using their scan and pay app. If you're only scanning and paying separately, um, you're looking at spending a hundred dollars to get a free coffee. Tim Hortons uh, has some has done something similar uh, as well uh, in the past, as has in the U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, chain Dunkin' Donuts. Why do companies do this? Yeah, so basically they they look at their numbers. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is driven from the, the finance side of things. And unfortunately, um, you know, having been in, in this industry for over 20 years, a lot of times the finance side doesn't seem to agree with the marketing slash loyalty side as to the value of loyalty programs. Then we look at the numbers um, that a loyalty program costs them. And I, I think we're seeing that here with some of these programs. We're seeing what, you know, people are redeeming for and what it's costing the company as a whole. Uh, not realizing that there's a lot more value to it than just those numbers. But so what we're seeing is, you know, just um, probably partially due to inflation. And I think they see they can do it. They can tie it into inflation and say, well, you know, what? our costs are up. We need to raise our prices for the rewards. So if somebody is, at, is sitting at these big multinational companies uh, and says, look, we have this many points that we owe our customers. That's a liability sitting on the books indirectly. And is, exactly. is that, is that, that's the bottom line for them then? 
That is the bottom line. Yeah, a lot of it it comes down to those numbers. You know, we're sitting on so much liability, and you know, with um, with the with us coming out of the pandemic here, a lot more people. Uh, I can't say a lot more people, but a, there were a, a good set of the population that just collected and collected and collected and didn't really redeem. Um, and so now we've seen these companies see their, you know, that liability grow on their books. So it's like, how can we lower that liability? Well, you know what, when they redeem, we're going to charge them twice as much so that they'll beat up um, the lowering of the liability on the books. Um, I, I'm very curious, you know, uh, I used to have a Starbucks card. I'd put $20, $25 on it and it was convenient uh, and you tap and go in, in many cases. But at the same time, what it also told me is I'm giving Starbucks $25, which they can put in a bank account and I will use it uh, here and there. I don't use it too often. But at the end of the day, they're still putting that money in a bank somewhere, which is collecting interest on their behalf, not my behalf. Um, I mean, I, uh, there is a loyalty card, and I understand loyalty, but for for the company to say, we're going to make it tougher for you, at the same time, they do want you and encourage you to put money on your account, which they, of course, will make interest off of. Oh, exactly. You know, there's um, you know, there's always a joke we, we talk about in the loyalty industry in that basically um, Starbucks is one of the largest banks in the world mm-hmm. because of that. <laughs> because people are, are are depositing money with Starbucks and they're making interest on it. So yeah, so it's um you know, and I agree. You know, they're making interest on it, and now they're gonna it's gonna be even even more so because you know they they're cutting what you know the value of the redemptions. So you know it, it's just more for their bottom line. Is there logic for consumers in your mind to have loyalty cards, reward cards anymore? Does it matter? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, especially with. Um, costs going up uh, across the board. You know, we have um, programs that help you with your groceries, your, uh, your Tim's rewards, my McDonald's rewards. You know, a lot of people aren't changing some of their day-to-day habits. They're, they're, still, they're still going for their morning coffee and all that. And unfortunately, yeah, the programs are changing. Like Tim Hortons changes in about a week and a half here. And, you know, they're becoming a little more expensive before you get your free reward. Um, but ultimately, it still helps you on the, you know, as a consumer, it helps your bottom line as well. Unfortunately, not as much as it did a week ago um, with some of these programs, but with other programs, the, the value is um, is still there. You know, you have uh, Scotiabank and Scene Plus, which just did a, a big expansion um, as they took over um, with Empire Group, you know, the Sobeys and Safeways and and their stores uh, away from Air Miles. And, you know, their program's pretty decent as well. I mean, you can redeem right at the till to, to save $10, $20 on your on, on your groceries at that time. So, so loyalty programs definitely still make sense. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the they are controlled by the companies and they can always change the value on you. And do these still work for companies as well? I mean, you're saying it works for consumers because some at the end of the day, something will be free, even though you're showing loyalty, you'll get something that's 10 or $20 at a grocery store or a cup of coffee may take a little longer. But for for companies, it's still worth their time, I guess, because of a, um, if you're putting money onto account like I was, it's a free loan I'm giving to them. Or I guess in this case, there is still loyalty, they believe, or you're building brand loyalty with customers? In some way, absolutely. Yeah, you're still build, building that brand loyalty. It's well known in the industry as well that the minute um, a customer redeems points and gets rewarded, there's a sensation of being happy and sensation, hey, that program did something for me. So they tend to be more loyal to that program, whether it's, you know, even for just a free coffee at Tim Hortons. Um, there's just that little bit of, 
I guess uh, euphoria. It's like, hey, I got something for free, and it and it changes uh, customers' behaviors or encourages their behavior to continue. It's like, you know what? Well, I enjoy getting you know one free coffee from Tim's a month, so I'm going to continue. You know, get my daily coffee there, but I'm going to make sure I, I scan my my card for them for sure. So, so they they're it's big for the companies. It's big for the customers. Overall, you know, we all get mad and disappointed when they change on us like this. But three months down the road, I think most Starbucks customers will be back to you know, not not grumbling about it and scanning their card and trying to get points so they can get that for you. Patrick, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Jeff. We often hear of terms like a housing crisis or that housing shouldn't be a, a commodity. Uh, we often talk about housing on this show and often people make comments about the missing middle. There's not enough three-bedroom condos and townhomes where, where young families can live. Well, this segment is not directly about that conversation. It's actually about the Vancouver homeowner. Now, this weekend's uh, Globe and Mail had this really great article written by Kerry Gold, and it provides uh, an interesting perspective on our city. Uh, The story, you know, does acknowledge that Vancouver residents are struggling with the highest real estate prices in Canada, but it also has the highest percentage of households without mortgages. Now think about that for a second. That analysis uh, was provided by Andy Yan, who is a urban planner and agent professor in urban studies and director of Simon Fraser University's city program. Uh, the article also touched uh, on the fact that this region has a huge appetite for investment properties, not just foreigners buying investment properties, that's the stereotype, but local people buying investment properties. We're equity rich uh, in this city. Joining me now to talk about uh, this side of the housing issue, which we don't touch on enough, is of course Andy Yen from SFU. Andy, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. First of all, what does this tell you that while we do have many people wanting to get into the housing market, working hard to get into the housing market, there is actually a significant chunk of this city that's actually not only in the housing market, they're debt-free. Indeed. And I think that was one of the more surprising um, outcomes in terms of doing this short little study based on the latest census. That uh, when we talk about metropolitan Vancouver, 41% of homeowners that that actually own a home uh, own it debt-free, that they don't pay a mortgage. And that was really surprising. I mean, it, it, it was something that was kind of counterintuitive towards what you may think or hear about what was going on in the housing market. What does this do to the discourse uh, when it comes to housing? You have, as they said, many who call this show, many people who say, look, it's not uh, an affordable city. It's very difficult, never mind getting into a single family home, but just getting into the market for the first time as a young person. Yet you have, as you say, 41% of the city that is in a home and is debt-free. What does it do to the broader discourse? Yeah. Oh, sorry, that's 41% of the region. Of the region. Now, specifically, uh, specifically talking about the city of Vancouver, it was 50%. That 50% of homeowners, people who own their homes, uh, own it debt-free, that don't pay a mortgage. And then the other 50% are paying a mortgage. And I think that it just brings in another level of complexity in terms of how we think about housing. That I think that it's very much really housing in Vancouver is a story of the haves, have-nots, and have-mores. And I think that it really brings a level of real complexity in towards when we talk about housing policy, about what we're building and whom are we building for. Uh, when you said 50% in the city of Vancouver, 41% for the mm-hmm. region, uh, mm-hmm. in regards to the city itself, once again, there's east and west. Uh, mm-hmm. was there di- were there differences in regards to what folks on the west side and, and home, home ownership there in East Vancouver? 
Oh, very much so. And you, you take the story of two neighborhoods that occupy the both ends of the mortgage story. That uh, for for those for the if you will neighborhood in, uh, in in Vancouver that had the least amount of that had no mortgages. Sixty four percent of the homeowners in the neighborhood of Oak Ridge had no mortgage. But yet, conversely, if you look at a place, well, actually, it's two neighborhoods are, are at the same percentages, Mount Pleasant or Strathcona, two neighborhoods on the east side, it's 31% of those uh, homeowners do, ha- do not have a mortgage. So is there a, a, a noticeable east-west divide? Um, very much so, that there seems to be a sizable east-west divide um, with the neighborhoods on the west side, Oak Ridge, Carisdale, West Point Gray, Oak, uh, Arbutus Ridge, Shaughnessy, that um, they actually have mortgage-free homes um, at about 60% of homeowners. So it's a, uh, the, the majority of homeowners on the west side do not have mortgages. Hmm. Uh, and in regards to that deeper discourse, I mean, you, you've been on the show many times and I've always mm-hmm. appreciated your time. Um, how do we start talking about housing of today? So, you know, I've brought up even topics like the death of the single family home. And mm-hmm. boy, I get a lot of calls pushing back on even comments that I make uh, on mm-hmm. such things. How do we move housing policy? You've talked about increased uh, complexity. How do we move to towards a, a modern housing policy that addresses the issues of today and now when so many homeowners, or I wouldn't, maybe this is the wrong word, mm-hmm. are content? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's it, they may be content, but then of course, are we not in the winter of our discontents for a uh, sizable population, particularly if you're a young Canadian or even for some newer Canadians that they, you certainly see their struggle in terms of entering the housing market, uh, certainly as an owner, but even as a renter, finding a, uh, an affordable, stable, and adequate place to rent is a challenge for new and young Canadians, and I think that this is really the challenge in terms. Terms of a level of, of I think compassion, a level of empathy from those that have to those that don't have, and I think that that is really part of the challenge of our time in this city and region. Yeah, I mean, people have always beyond just Vancouver, even Canada. When you look at other nations, you always look at the extremes. There's always a small minority that are very well off and rich, and then there's those who are mm-hmm. struggling. And this mm-hmm. is a broad generalization on my part, but when you just look at the mm-hmm. housing issue. Your comments this past week in the Globe and Mail and here highlight that extreme that we have. You've got this younger generation coming up that has followed the rules. They worked hard. They continue to work hard. They educate themselves. They come out with a lot of debt. But the game to them seems fixed, that you're doing everything you've been asked to do by society tells you to do, and you're doing it. And you don't have a chance Mm -hmm. to to, to find a home and make a home in the region. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's exactly it. And I think it's a question of how do you even the playing field? I think that, you know, another part of the study wasn't only, say, those homeowners who have mortgages, but then the sheer amounts of investors, of investment uh, real estate that is in the system. And how does that fit in to our housing system? That I think that when we look at really the kind of public policies we're going to need, it's going to be need, it's going to certainly need to deal with the issues of supply, whether it's, you know, dealing with the death or the, you know, or the uh, or the change, right? I think the change of the single detached home to demand. What kind of demands do we want to really uh, support? What kind of demands do we want to perhaps discourage to finance 
how really the realm of finance is affecting, I think, everything. I think that really the role of the fact that we're, we're a general, well, I've been, actually me, probably you, kind of you, in a generation of ultra-low interest rates, that I think that it's, it is part of really the challenges we have in front of us. Now, I do have to add, I do have some fresh data for Jazz Johal. Like, oh, I just couldn't hey, like, we love that. Stale stuff. Hey. And, it's, <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting to actually note that 20 years ago, one generation ago, you actually had a higher percentage of mortgage-free people, of mortgage-free homeowners. Oh, Okay. That 20 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, for, in, in metropolitan Vancouver, uh, 43% of owner households were mortgage-free, compared to 41% in 2021. Uh, I mean, that, they, it seems like a somewhat small percent, five percent, but that's a that's that's a that's off of a that's off of a small a smaller base. So I think it's interesting to see how, in one generation, mm-hmm. we actually have a level of, if you will, stress that even you know a a a, a, a growth of five percent of households that have to that that don't own, if you will, mortgage-free, that I think that that is also another dynamic to really understand is that a generation ago, we actually had more mortgage-free homeowners than we had today. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in the article itself, nationally, it was 69% uh, uh, of Canadians who owned their own home 10 years ago, and today it's fallen Mm to 66%. So uh, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a drop there as well. I just want to touch on one issue, and that was the the investors. Uh, And we covered this uh, story when it first came out from staff. Canada. In BC, about 23% of property owners, or one in five, are investors as well. Now, I think about 7% are, are uh, 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 investor-owned condos by non-residents, 7%. So the bulk of the investors, even in, in, in rental market, is predominantly locals, are predominantly locals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I think that that's um, mind you, there are some complexities about do they actually represent local? Is, what's the role of foreign capital? That I mean, that there is there is that. But then I think it very much goes down to the idea that when we talk about condominiums in the city of Vancouver, we're really talking about uh, we're really talking about thirty eight percent of I'm, I'm sorry, um, South Toronto, forty two percent of all condominiums in the city of Vancouver are investment properties. Wow, 42%. Now, you take in the federal government's ban on foreign ownership for a couple of years and everything mm-hmm. else that's been done here in British Columbia at the provincial level and at the, uh, the municipal level as well. Do you mm-hmm. see that as enough or do you think we need to be doing doing even more in, and I don't know if how you would describe it, leveling the playing field or giving a younger generation a chance to enter the market? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's, it's very much going to be really, um, I, te- I think, attempts to level playing field in terms of these uh, these areas of supply, demand, and finance. I think that uh, part of this, of course, in, in acknowledging that 42% of uh, all condominiums in, in Vancouver are investment uh, units, that uh, they certainly form a sizable proportion of the rental pool. Now, that rental, unfortunately, tends to be more expensive and more unstable than purpose-built uh, rental, but then it still has that element. And I think that we've also seen the, uh, the development. Uh, remember, with that, uh, with, that uh, with that federal foreign buyers ban, it's a partial foreign buyers ban that there are, I think, a number of loopholes in and exemptions in that legislation. But I think moving forward, I think that it's very much, I think, finding additional supports for first-time homeowners. I think that it's really looking at poli- uh, looking at well, other countries like Singapore. It's actually a really good example of what happened, uh, like what they do in terms of tax rates for those who own two, three, four properties. 
um, and really, I think, uh, having a acknowledgement that uh, a home ought to be a home first as opposed to an investment. But then should you go into investment, that I think that there is, I think, a greater alignment towards um, capital gains that you see in terms of businesses and really how, uh, I think, when people use their residential real estate as a business, that they're taxed and charged accordingly. Mm-hmm. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Always enjoy your conversation. Always a pleasure, Jazz. The United States said today it still doesn't know the origin or purpose of those three aerial objects that uh, the military shot down uh, over the weekend. Of course, tensions um, and accusations being thrown around between Washington and Beijing. Uh, American and Canadian officials were unable to explain the origin of, of those um, three objects as of yet. Uh, Washington called the Chinese craft a surveillance balloon, while China keeps saying that it was a weather monitoring vessel. That was the original one. Now, the U.S. military fighter jets on Sunday down down an object over Lake Huron on Friday. Uh, of course, an object was shot down over uh, ice, sea ice near uh, Dead Horse, Alaska. And, of course, a third object, cylindrical in shape, was destroyed over the Yukon. Um, Defense Minister Anita Anand spoke on the uh, on the downing of the aerial object over the weekend. Take a listen. To the best of our knowledge, this was the first time that a NORAD operation has downed an aerial object. The object was flying at an altitude of approximately 40,000 feet, had unlawfully entered Canadian airspace, and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. The object was downed approximately 100 miles from the Canada-United States border over Canadian territory in central Yukon. That was Defense Minister Anita Nund over the weekend. Now, John Kirby, who uh, is a spokesperson with the U.S. National Security Council, was asked if there will be a more of a formal approach to handling this type of incident going forward. Take a listen. Again, that's what—that's exactly what the the president wants Mr. Sullivan to run as a process, an interagency process, to help us, as I said in my opening statement, get around the policy implications here, and whether and whether or not there needs to be any uh, policy changes going forward. That was John Kirby from the U.S. National Security Council. Joining us now is Richard Shmuka. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, specializing in strategic studies, comparative defense management approaches, and foreign policy. Mr. Shmuka, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, when it comes to national security in regards to what's transpired over the weekend and, of course, the original uh, spy balloon uh, issue from uh, last week, um, how concerned should we be as Canadians? I think there's been a lot of speculation and obviously there's quite a bit we still don't know. But I think as like a direct threat, it doesn't seem like it's a major one. I think what it's more in, what it's likely more indicative, I should say, is that the especially uh, if it's Chinese in origin or much of this is Chinese origin is a much broader effort for them to modernize their strategic nuclear forces. And one of the aspects that they're going to have to try to figure out if they're trying to build more ICBMs or intercontinental ballistic missiles and hypersonic weapons that can attack the United States is that they're going to try to understand how our defenses, our radar sites and uh, other sensor platforms would be, uh, would be able to track their missiles. So my guess is based on the information that we have and you know what's kind of been said, especially about the one large balloon that was shot down on, I believe, February 4th, is that they're trying to better understand how we, how we may defend ourselves if, if it ever came to 
a possible nuclear exchange between our two uh, two countries or two alliances. Now, the first balloon went through Canada before it was shot down um, by the U.S. Um, uh, should Canada have shot down that first balloon? Um, I think it may have been difficult. Uh, the argument that's been put forward why it wasn't shot down is that it was large and it may present a hazard uh, to wherever it may have come down. We don't know what was inside of it. It may have had some volatile gases uh, within or other toxic materials. Uh, large ob- objects of this size crashing down could have you know, potentially hit uh, houses or whatever. So uh, they thought that they, they would wait till it passed over any, any sort of you know, potential crash, uh, human habitation and shoot it down the sea. The other side of doing that was that it allowed them to potentially recover more of the, uh, more of the balloon, which is something that they def- definitely wanted to do in order to understand what its purpose was and um, what, uh, what it may have actually been able to detect when it flew over sight. And so, as you say, the, the, the debris that was uh, recovered, it's very important right now in regards to finding out what it was used for and the technology they were using and what potentially, as you say, they could have uh, been spying on. Absolutely. And also how to detect it in the future. That's probably one of the most critical parts, that if we understand uh, how our radars kind of interacted with it, because there's been some suggestion uh, that our radars weren't calibrated properly in order to identify balloons because balloons were not seen as a major threat. Mm-hmm. Now you have something to offer to test it against, so to speak. They can better calibrate our sensors in order to detect any future um, future uh, incursions. Yeah. How much, with technology today, uh, obviously you can catch a lot, but at the same time, technology allows you to work around other technology that is supposed to keep us safe as well. I mean, I think of not just these balloons, but the fact that the U.S. was able to go um, in the darkness and go into Afghanistan, or sorry, to Pakistan and find Osama bin Laden and take him out when there was still radar in Pakistan. They have a pretty significant amount of dollars they spend on their military as well. Will we have that technology to actually you know, pinpoint a balloon that's traveling at 40,000 feet? Um, and are we asking too much even for our defense management? So I don't think, in reality, it shouldn't, it shouldn't necessarily be an issue. One of the big aspects, I think one of the things that most uh, wide parts of the population don't understand is just what a sort of game it is, for lack of a better word, between China, Russia, and the United States and our allies to sort of uh, sort of gain really small advantages in capabilities, which may be, you know, may turn out to be decisive if if, if a sort of war occurred, like what we're seeing actually in Ukraine now. And both sides spend literally billions of dollars every year to sort of see what are small advances in radar technology, how our signal processing works. There's a lot of espionage that goes on mm-hmm. through various means. And and those little advantages could be pretty significant. So this, in the case of what I was talking about before, how our radars weren't calibrated, that understanding how to calibrate that, understanding how to detect that, that's a pretty big sort of issue that the United States now is looking at. It's like, well, how do we kind of get, how do we sort of make ourselves better prepared for this? And they're working on that uh, as we speak. There's already been suggestions that they've already sort of made some, um, made some adjustments to allow them to do so. I think what it also suggests very quickly is that there's a modernization of the NORAD radar system that's coming up and Canada and the United States are basically in the final stages Mm -hmm. of, uh, of negotiating this. It's going to have a pretty significant price tag. 
partly because it will be able to cover much, much more comprehensively both of our territories from a whole wide range of threats. Mm-hmm. Before balloons, it was actually low-level cruise missiles, which were very, are, are the, the current radars aren't very well adapted for. So there's a large amount of sort of potential threats that both of our countries are kind of looking at and sort of developing uh, better approaches for dealing with going forward. Beyond this challenge at the moment, and it hasn't ended, we could have other balloons, we could have other incidents. You would take that in the context of the two Michaels that were kidnapped. You take that into the context of the decision not to allow Huawei to be part of our 5G infrastructure network. You take that with the broader conversation of why we have at times scientists connected to the Chinese government doing research projects with our major universities. All of that and the totality of that plus the balloon issue now, what does this tell us and what should we be looking at as a country, not just in regards to air defense and radar, but a broader strategy when it comes to China? Well, I think if we think about sort of the foundational principles, going back to what you're talking about, Vic, is that right now, China, as much as China is, you know, a very powerful country, as by some measures, the second largest economy in the world, um, they also feel weak. I think there's a, there's a understanding that the foundations of their society, especially with uh, po- the potential for unrest, just like going back all the way back to 1990 Tiananmen and other and other sort of issues that they do feel there is a sort of a a fear of the sort of weakness, right? And if you look at also their attempts to sort of push out their sort of maritime boundaries in the South China Sea and their position against the Senkaku Dayu Islands and also Taiwan, that these are seen as being major sort of um, major sort of important parts to ensure that their own sort of security, right? Mm-hmm. And going to if if we think about that, they also they, it, it helps them to sort of project an ability to prevent us from from projecting our sort of capability, especially the United States, which is strong nuclear deterrent that is you know protecting uh, Japan. So there is a larger clash here, and and very much if they see weakness in Canada, and we've seen significant intelligence efforts in this country. I mean, this this balloon uh, approach is certainly uh, is is looking at one aspect of our security with the United States. If you think about all this together they are also looking at how to make us weak to some degree in order to achieve some of their um, some of their objectives and also preventing us from maybe exploiting some of their weaknesses, for lack of a better word, at the well, same time. Well, it's opened up, uh, uh, once again, not just the, the, the near and dear issue right now with the, with the spy balloons, but a broader conversation about China and Canada and the U.S. as well, and the West, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Richard, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciated uh, the conversation. Thanks for having me. If you're watching uh, BC1 today or on social media, you would have seen video posted um, showing a commercial truck colliding with an overpass uh, in Richmond uh, Friday morning. The truck was traveling southbound on Knight Street and uh, it was a dump truck and it was in the raised position. And uh, I just saw it earlier today and you could just see what was about to occur and we all saw what transpired and the impact it had on rush hour traffic in the morning and um, uh, in, in the afternoon drive time as well. As well, Now, the Richmond Road Safety Unit uh, is still investigating the incident, but it's not yet known if any charges could be laid. I was just checking around in regards to, um, you know, trucks uh, hitting overhead bridges. And what I, can, what I found today was between 2021 and 2022, but uh, there was uh, seven incidents 
uh, in that period where trucks carrying overheight loads struck overhead bridges. What's causing this? Why is this happening? Uh, because it is a significant issue, not only to the driver, uh, to other commuters, but also to our infrastructure as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what transpired last week, but the broader issue of overpass accidents is Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Your thoughts, first and foremost. Uh, I know uh, you're away on vacation, but you're certainly aware of the incident that transpired, uh, that overpass in, in Richmond. Your thoughts, first of all, on, on what you, I'm sure, have seen and heard. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the things, Jazz, that when you first look at it, I really, it, it's obvious at first blush what happened. Uh, you know, the box was in the raised position, but I don't know how that occurred. Um, equipment's not supposed to be able to do that, quite frankly. So there, there seems to be to be something that's gone awry uh, in terms of how that box came to be in the raised position. Um, but in that broader context, yeah, there, there's a lot more um, work that has to be done to better understand what we're dealing with uh, when we see these things than, uh, than we see at first blush. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to clarify, this is a, a, a dump truck and they are not members of the BC Trucking Association. Let's, let's clarify that first and foremost. Yeah, and that's correct. We don't uh, have barely a handful of of dump trucks, and they're part of our other members' fleets. So I can't speak for them, uh, certainly, and and certainly wouldn't want to. But it's just, um, it's something that when we we look at, we try and learn from incidents to do better, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, well, how did this happen? And as you noted, uh, there's been been seven uh, incidents in the previous, you know, year or two, uh, which is precisely seven too many. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one of the things that we work with government to say, well, share with us the information so we can figure out, is it training? Is it enforcement? What is it? But uh, we just don't know. So there's been no broader discourse between the government and your association or the broader trucking community in regards to what's causing this, what their investigations have concluded to, as you say, to do better. No, we haven't had that opportunity to sit down with them and debrief over the half a dozen incidents. Now, some of the reports may tell us things, some may not. Uh, Some may tell us that it is carelessness. Some may tell us that it was a mistake. Um, We just don't know. And that's the problem is because we don't know, we've been saying, you know, it's time to share. It's time to have those conversations so we can better understand what exactly we're dealing with. So the government at this point, has not uh, talked openly about what those investigations have concluded. Like, just the government isn't participating here in, with the industry. Well, they're 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 always talking. They're always amiable, and they're very open to having conversations. But when we get to the point of saying share specifics, um, one of the things we've said for many many years as an association. Um, so, if you're a customer, Jazz, and you want to go hire a good carrier, well, how do you do that? Uh, Well, you can contact us and we can tell you the questions to ask, but we've been saying to government, why don't you make this data available online? And they've been working towards that. I've been working diligently towards it. Um, But, you know, working towards it and delivering what we need are two different things. And, you know, it's time that we start, you know, putting some pins on the wall and saying, okay, uh, we've done that. Let's move on. Is it difficult, do you think, partially also, because I'm going to make some assumptions here, but the dump truck industry, they're predominantly probably owner operators. They may potentially have an association, but there's no sort of um, union or or, or an organization that they collectively speaks on their behalf or provides potentially training beyond. 
beyond the initial uh, mandatory training that they have to go through. Is that part mm-hmm. of the issue as well, just the way the industry may be structured? Well, I think so, Jazz. And when you look at the broader industry, there are 16,000 trucking companies registered in general trucking in British Columbia. And of those, about 22 have 100 or more employees. I mean, that gives you a sense of how fractured the industry is. We've got several hundred good-sized trucking companies. But, you know, when I look at our membership, the vast majority of our membership have less than five trucks. You know, these are small companies that are trying to do the right thing and trying, uh, you know, to to do it right and joining associations. There's a whole bunch of people that just don't know, and we really need to do a better job reaching out. Uh in this case, just based on the video that every many people have seen, uh, n- no amount of infrastructure or different type of infrastructure was going to was going to save this individual in regards to the truck hitting uh, the the overpass. But is part of it also just infrastructure, older infrastructure that perhaps uh, new infrastructure would be built a little higher? It, it would take into consideration different sizes, and in, in some cases, may just be older infrastructure that's leading some of the and, and training itself. But infrastructure is part of that that we. We just have to update some of that infrastructure that we built, uh, the overpasses that we've built. I mean, yeah, Jess, we we do. We have to update it for a whole bunch of reasons. And and you're right, we can never build it high enough to get the really big loads underneath. You know, and when I look at it, um, you know, people would ask me, you know, what do you think, you know, caused this? And I mean, I, I would stare out the window and say, well, you know, gee whiz, it was either too high or the bridge is too low. Um, you say that tongue in cheek, but... There's a grain of, of truth there, and we can't blame infrastructure. Um, we can't get there and say, you know, the reason why this happened is is to is because it was too low. And I, I know that's not what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, but there is a grain of truth to it to say, you know, yeah, it, it's been built a long, long time ago. And when you look at how much opportunity we lose and how much economic activity we lose because really big oversized loads cannot move through the port of Vancouver. Um, it's really disheartening. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, beyond just the, that incident uh, last week, uh, today the government did announce that uh, starting in the summer, um, commercial vehicle operators will be required to use electronic logging devices to track drivers' time behind the wheel, which reduces the likelihood of driving while tired. Speak to me a little bit about what this will mean to your industry moving forward. Oh, sure, Jazz. I mean, we, we are so pleased that government's taken this step. Um, it's in concert with every other jurisdiction across Canada. Uh, it's a federal standard. It's been in place federally since June of last year. It's been enforced uh, on federal carriers operating in BC since January 1st of this year. You know, two-thirds of the fleet uh, commercially across the country right now, it's our best estimate, are already running it. What it is, it doesn't change the rules. It doesn't change the law. It changes how drivers and companies have to comply with the law. So there's no more running two different log books. There's no more running uh, around the edges and fudging a little bit here and there. There's no more. It's third-party certified. It's as locked down as we can make it, and it's electronic. So you uh, don't have to do your charting at the end of the day. Um, you do it as you go through your day. So for those that are complying with the law, it's a lot easier. And for those that are cheating, it's a lot harder. Well, that's that's great news uh, for the driver's safety uh, and also uh, motorists and commuters as well. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jess. 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.